0: Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroder's. As investors, we have to tackle decision making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it.
1: This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy.
2: In today's episode, we have Marvin Barth. Marvin is a debt research analyst in the fixed income, currencies, and commodities research department at Barclays. In July of this year, he wrote a very interesting piece where he makes the point that we are living one of the most uncertain times the world has seen in the last 100 years. He discusses his piece with us in this episode. We hope you enjoy it.
0: Um, Marvin, welcome. Thank you very much for uh,
1: coming on the show. Juan, Andy, thank you guys for having me on. I'm glad to be here.
0: Thanks. So uh, let's start off. Back in July, you wrote a piece called Managing Uncertainty, um, and it's not really a topic we see people on the sales side writing about very much. So it, it piqued our interest. Can, can you start by talking us through you know, what you're looking for in that note and, and what were your key findings?
1: Yeah, well, thank you for uh, noticing that. That was, by the way, part of the uh, um, Barclays 65th Annual uh, Equity Guilt Study, which uh, um, tells you something about the tradition of research at at Barclays. Um, As the title suggests, it's about uncertainty. And the first point that I'm trying to make is that despite all the information and data analysis methods that are now at our disposal, We are actually living in a time of unprecedented, at least certainly within our lifetimes, uh, uncertainty. I mean, this is the deepest global recession in the last 75 years. uh, And by our calculations, it's something between the second and fourth largest global growth catastrophe of the last 220 years. Um, And that's really just the economic portion of the shock. You know, COVID was also a massive health shock. Psychological shock. It's a political shock, Uh, and as we're seeing, it's developing into a geopolitical shock. And all of those different components are going to reverberate and feed back with each other through time in a way that's going to create many unimagined occurrences. And so the piece is really, with that as a background, well, how do you manage that uncertainty if you're a, a an investment or a business manager? What do you do um, to deal with that? And I think, you know, the first thing you need to uh, do is understand how people behave under uncertainty. Um, And uh, if you have that, you can better understand uh, how others around you are gonna react, um, but also how not to fall into the same myopic traps that some others are going to. Um, One of the dominant behaviors that you see with uncertainty is um, uh, ambiguity aversion, which is basically you, you, you try to avoid uncertainty. People do not like uh, uh, uncertainty and, and, and they try and hide from it. This is the proverbial ostrich head stuck in the sand, right? Um, the way we see this manifest in, in markets generally is um, what you might describe as Benchmark hugging. So you get herding behavior. Uh, and you know, this is a rational response. Um, you, you know, uh, we all may go down this year, we all may have bad returns this year, but at least I'm not going to be fired for underperforming my peers because all of us are underperforming. Um, and so that's one of the first things you notice. A similar sort of behavior is um, what's called robustness satisficing. Um, I think most people will be more familiar with this in the more colloquial term, um, uh, covering your bottom, right? What do I do not to lose my job? And, and that, again, tends to lead to hurting strategies, um, uh, but is a different approach uh, to, to get there. And then, you know, we look at what are the effects of this, and all this hurting leads to a really perverse pattern uh, in markets, particularly in market volatility, um, that's somewhat surprising, I, I, I think, when you think about it in the context of high uncertainty. Rather than getting higher volatility, you tend to get lower volatility, because, everybody herding together means nobody takes a big position, nobody steps out of line and prices don't move as much until you get some new information. And then you get this massive shift in the herd all at once and you get these explosions of volatility. And that is actually what we've seen in the last decade that is different from previous decades. In previous decades, you tended to get a big surge in volatility around a recession and it slowly fell through time um, um, into the next recession. But in the last decade, we've seen the opposite. We've seen persistent low volatility with more frequent explosions of short-term volatility. Um, And Finally, we close with a a strategy for how we think you can deal with this, which is effectively we turn that robustness satisfying on its head and suggest that you should use this scenario analysis to help you create an insurance portfolio, uh, an affordable insurance portfolio that allows you to change the risk topography of your portfolio in a way that allows you to take more risk around your core views. So that's, that's all very interesting, and we'll, we'll
2: definitely tap into more detail in some of the um, things that you have just mentioned in, in the, during the course of the session. But uh, maybe we can start by talking a little bit more about how you think about defining risk and uncertainty. And specifically, you mentioned in your peers some concepts like the Frank Knight's definition and the Ellsberg paradox. So maybe you can walk us through what those are and how do you go thinking about it?
1: This is a really important question, Juan, and thank you for pointing out that I sort of skipped over that, because definitions are really important here, and I think especially in this this area. Most people have a really vague feeling uh, about uncertainty. They kind of think they know what it is, and they know they don't like it, but they have a difficult time defining it, and I th- think, uh, you know, one of the first people who formally defined it was an American economist named Frank Knight. Uh, he wrote a book back in 1921 called Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit. And in it, he described uncertainty as risks that are non-quantifiable, as opposed to quantifiable risks like, say, the... Um, uh, chance that you're dealt an ace in a card game, something that'll be familiar to uh, um, your listeners from your interviews with Annie Duke. And I think a great illustration of this difference between quantifiable and non-quantifiable risks is something that you, you mentioned there um, called the Ellsberg uh, Paradox. Now, uh, uh, another American economist, Daniel Ellsberg, who was at the Rand Institute, um, and is actually probably most famous for release or leaking the Pentagon Papers uh, back in uh, the early 70s. Um, In economics, he's most famous for what is called the Ellsberg Paradox. And it's, it's a great illustration of both ambiguity aversion, that people don't like uncertainty, as well as what uncertainty really is. So imagine that I have an urn here that has 100 balls in it. And we know that 40 of those balls are red. And of the remaining 60, some are black and some are yellow. But we don't know how many of each of those. Now I'm gonna offer you one of two bets. I'm gonna reach into the urn and pull out a ball. And you can bet either that that ball is gonna be red or that that ball is gonna be yellow. Now, interestingly, this has been um, tried in just thousands of repeated experiments. And every single time, even when you change the payoffs on the yellow ball bet, people almost always choose the red ball bet. Why? Because they can quantify what the chance of getting a red ball is. It's uh, 40%, whereas you have no idea, you cannot quantify what is the chance of getting a yellow ball. And so it's this beautiful illustration of both the un- what uncertainty really is, this unquantifiable risk, as well as you know, that people really do not like it. They try and avoid it whenever they can. But actually, I think that the person who better clarified this idea of uncertainty, um, and, you know, he did this frankly throughout economics. It was John Maynard Keynes. And so about the same time that Frank, Wright was, um, uh, Frank Knight was uh, writing his book, um, Keynes published a treatise on probability. Uh, and it's just fantastic in its clarity. And what he does is he actually delineates risk into three buckets. Um, he talks about objective risks, which are like those card game risks we talked about before. Subjective risks, which a good example of that might be something like the probability of an earthquake on the San Andreas Fault, right? We know earthquakes are possible. We know the outcomes. We just don't know what the probability is and we have to guess at it, right? It's not an objective probability. So there's an element of uncertainty there. And then there's finally what he calls actual uncertainty, which is where you may not even know the outcomes. You not only don't know the probabilities, you may not even know the outcomes. So think back to the beginning of this year, how many people really understood that it was possible that 7 billion people would be under lockdown (laughs) in April. Not People didn't just not know the probability of that. They didn't know that was on the menu. And so this is what the brilliance of Kane is he really illustrates these yeah. degrees of risk.
0: Thanks very much for those definitions. Very clear, Marvin. Um, so one of your, cl- your conclusions, and you spoke about this right up top, is that you think that uncertainty is greater today than it has been in the past. And I think we had a discussion last time with, in our last session. And we made the argument that it always feels very uncertain at the time. And if you look back with hindsight, very uncertain things look very clear. And so living with uncertainty will change your perception. So we can think in the last hundred years, there's been lots of things which have felt very uncertain at the time. There's been world wars, there's been missile crises. there's been spikes in inflation, spikes in interest rates. So how do you get to the conclusion that more uncertain especially given the point you just made that it's effectively something which is unquantifiable and and how do you have that firm belief that you can see this as a the most uncertain time
1: yeah well um that's a really good question andy because um uh it is a difficult question um and note that as you said i just defined uncertainty as unquantifiable risks so how would I go about and quantify how much uncertainty there is now versus the past if I can't even quantify the risks I'm talking about? Um, and so I think this really falls into the same category as what US Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart um, gave as the definition of pornography. I know it when I see it, right? Um, and. You know, I, I'm I am definitely subjectively making a guess here. I'm saying, look, if I look back at um, history, certainly at least since World War Two, and I take your point if I'm going to go back before World War Two, there was the world was a much more uncertain place. Um, but in the last seventy-five years, I would say that we're facing the greatest level of uncertainty now. And why? And why do I say that? Um, well, I think um, there's there's some very clear things. So since World War II, we've mostly lived under a framework um, uh, where we had a global trading system that was defined by the Bretton Woods uh, m- meetings, um, where our economies and uh, and our economic policies were defined by that trade policy. Um, This broadening uh, increase towards globalization, it was all one big uh, um, trend. And we lived in either this bipolar Soviet versus the US world, or this unipolar US world. But all of that is breaking down right now all of those institutions are breaking down. Um, And we have rising challengers to the global incumbents. And we also have um, this um, uh, uh, technology-driven breakdown of globalization. So this trend of increasing globalization is now reversing uh, as a result of technology. That said, even though I'm making a subjective guess, there have been attempts to try and quantify this. So with the advent of uh, natural language processing, speaking of technology, um, many economists have actually tried to, you know, sift through uh, a century's worth of news reports and things like that to look for words that indicated uncertainty about either um, politics, or economic policy, or geopolitics, or wars, or things like that, and all of them show a sustained rise um, in all of those um, over the, la- the course of the last two decades to the highest level we've seen since um, uh, the World War II era. Just just to follow up on that, um, it's kind of really interesting about how you talked about some
0: uncertainty uncertain circumstances before world war ii and and afterwards i've got another question which is you know the flow of information is a lot greater now than it has been at any other time in the past do you think that helps or hinders uncertainty does it make us perceive more uncertainty or does it allow us to be more aware of what's going on
1: that's an excellent question uh and i think it goes both ways so it's absolutely clear that the Um, Vast increase in the availability of information combined with computing power has allowed us to um, sort of triangulate and and identify many different things that we couldn't identify previously. But there's also simultaneously uh, effectively an information overload that we're all dealing with. Um, and I think that helps foster at least an impression of greater uncertainty, um, uh, but I suspect it also actually creates greater un- uh, uncertainty uh, as, as well. A good example of this is um, Uh, uh, my good friend uh, David Kilcullen, who's one of the foremost experts on um, uh, asymmetric warfare, in particular um, insurgency, he uh, highlights um, that a lot of what we've seen from Russia recently um, is actually um, concerted misinformation. So uh, the idea is to sow confusion. So whereas in the United States, we have this tremendous d- debate on one side, people saying that there was Russian interference in, in the U.S. election to help Donald Trump, and on the other side saying, no, there wasn't, or it was inconsequential. That wasn't even the point of their interference. The point of their interference was to create that discussion, to create that um, uh, sense of debate and misinformation and lack of trust in, in, in the system, which in itself creates uncertainty.
2: Marvin, you, you said at the beginning of the uh, of the session, and this is something that we actually um, we, we, we actually talked up in the past um, few months. Um, you said that um, this kind so the side effects of this behavior is seen in suppressed volatility which uh, to us seems a little bit counterintuitive in an environment which is more uncertain. So given volatility can fit into risk models, could you perhaps talk us through the implications of these findings?
1: So Juan, I, I, this is really the sort of underlying implicit message of my piece, and I, thank you for I- identifying it, um, which is, you know, if you think about where we are in finance? And I kind of just alluded to that in uh, my answer to the last question um, Andy asked. We've moved to a world, especially in finance, where we use all these models that are quantitative and based on data analysis. Now, if you think about it, those are explicitly models of objective risks, right? And, you know, there are occasions where we might be dealing with subjective risks, but we treat them as though they're objective risk and we substitute in for our um, subjective probabilities, market implied probabilities, you know, so uh, it, it implied volatilities from options markets, um, or uh, in, you know, elections and things like that, or events like Brexit, we use betting market odds and things like that. But those are not objective probabilities, and yet we're treating them as though they are. And here's here's the problem, if I am right about this, I know it when I see it, and we are living in a much more uncertain world where more of our risk is non-quantifiable, but we're using quantifiable methods to run um, our uh, investment programs, we're gonna run into real problems here because we're gonna get it wrong. And we've seen this, there are real world consequences. We saw this happen with Brexit. We saw it happen with the 2016 elections. And I think we saw it even much more violently um, with the outbreak uh, of COVID. Markets had these probabilities completely wrong because they were using these market implied probabilities to help them define the risks when, in reality, the risks were far different from what um, uh, markets would suggest. And that's really the underlying point of, of my piece. In a world of sustained high uncertainty, you cannot operate like you're only facing objective risks or even subjective risks for which you think you have a good handle on the, uh, the, the probabilities. That's just not reality. You really do have to use techniques like satisficing to do this scenario analysis and accept that you're gonna to have to deal with ambiguity. Um, if, I'm a, if I
2: might uh, follow up on that. Yes. So, but wouldn't, wouldn't a, a period of very high uncertainty uh, be reflected in market prices with dollar lower asset prices rather than very high asset prices. And you're seeing in today's world that pretty much across the board,
1: all asset prices are very, very high. Okay. So, so that's, that's, that's an interesting uh, point. And I think it gets to how do you measure whether asset prices are are high? So, um, uh, you know, um, bond yields are incredibly low. Right. In fact, we have negative yields across a huge swath of uh, um, sovereign bonds in, in the world at this point. Um, what does that mean? That means that people are willing to pay a very high price, a price so high they're willing to forego interest. They're even willing to pay interest to for you to hold their money safely. In the world of finance, there's really not anything more secure than a high quality government bond, right? That's basically the most certain return you can have. And so we are seeing actually that markets are trying to pay a very high price for certainty. But now notice that because you now have um, uh, real interest rates at extraordinarily low or even negative levels, think about what that implies for other prices, which have to be discounted by those rates. And so if I look at something like very high stock prices, if I remove the risk-free discount factor, the real um, uh, um, underlying interest rate strip from that, I'm left with the equity risk premium, the amount of additional discount that was required to get to that price. And what you find is that actually that equity risk premium is not particularly cheap these days it's not super expensive it 's not like it uh, as expensive as it was back in March of this year or back in in you know two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, but it is actually above um, uh, its average of say the last ten years, and more importantly, if we go back and look at um, you know, 150 years uh, of data, it seems to be a, a, above the average there, or at least roughly in line with that average. So I'm not sure I'd agree with your characterization that markets are really um, pricing things as though there is no uncertainty. I would say actually, market pricing is telling me very clearly that markets do face uncertainty and they're rationally trying to pay for certainty in um, bunds and treasuries and JGBs um, and charging a greater premium to hold even um, uh, high quality stocks.
0: Okay. Thank, we thank we you know very much cover, for that. We know in uncertain times that you know people behave differently and, and you gave the theoretical example before about the urns and, and the balls and the urns. But I mean, what are the kind of psychological aspects of this you know how how are people behaving differently you talk about satisfying what other things do you see out there um, as to how people change their behavior
1: yeah so they um uh these behaviors i think they're very similar to um uh you know stress behavior so you know i'm many of your listeners are probably familiar with chronic stress versus acute stress and in chronic stress people sort of retreat into their caves and withdraw and during acute stress they have a fight or flight mechanism right they you know jump up and either fight or they run away um and that is really the way you should think about how people have been behaving under uncertainty while the uncertainty is high and unchanging people have that you know crouched behavior um, and when it is, um, changing, uh, they get a fight or flight mechanism. That's what gives us those volatility spikes. So, you know, I mentioned that, you know, people do this bench benchmark hugging, but you can see, you can see this in, in some other ways. So, you know, one of that sort of crouched position it, and it fits very well with, um, Ellsberg's analysis of ambiguity, uh, aversion is, um, uh, the shift towards um, quant funds, right? Quant funds are an effort to remove all the non-objective risks, to only focus on objective risks, right? And um, that's fine if you're one of the first people to do it, but as more and more quant funds develop and everybody goes chasing the same objective risks, the excess returns are are quickly bid away. And if you look, these um, funds are typically turning out benchmark returns. The same thing has happened to um, uh, even non-quant fundamental discretionary uh, um, uh, funds, because they too, even though they're non-quant, they have adopted quantitative methods in their risk management in the same way that Juan um, uh, just alluded to. Um, and they too have bit away that alpha. So that sort of then um, leads the people investing in these funds to say, well, gosh, well, I might as well just invest in a passive fund, which is the ultimate form of benchmark hugging, because of course you're just investing in the benchmark itself.
2: Um, so the... Value Perspectives uh, podcast series has been about how do you make better decisions in uncertain environments? And your piece, which is about uh, uncertainty, um, you you conclude with a sort of framework to help investors make better decisions when they are facing very high uncertainty. And you actually uh, mentioned uh, the framework at the beginning of of the session. So maybe could you walk us through um, what the framework is I think it has five different steps, and how do you go about implementing it?
1: Yeah, I was a bit brief in describing it earlier because, you know, frankly, like the world around us, um, uh, it's a complicated process. I I try and simplify it, and make you know, it sound oh, I've got a five-step program, <laughs> but um, ultimately. Those five steps are are, are not simple. So let me try and walk you through it um, as um, uh, in the most simplified form form possible, Um, which is the first step is you need to do an initial uh, um, uh, assessment of the risks in your portfolio. So go back to what I, I, I told you before about you know Keynes' definition of different types of, of risk, objective risk, subjective risk, and uncertain risks. The first thing you need to do is go through your portfolio and say, What in my portfolio is subject to objective risk? What's subject to subjective, subjective risk, and what's subjective or, or uh, um, subject to uncertain risks? and then do an initial sort of allocation of capital towards um, your investment themes, based on that initial uh, assessment, okay? Then the second step is that you need to do a comprehensive assessment of the world around you. What are the vulnerabilities and resiliencies Embedded in current asset markets. Um, so, to uh, one of your earlier questions, if you think stocks are overvalued, is is that a vulnerability, or is you know people, are people's bond holdings a resiliency, as as, as I argued? Um, you need to go through and comprehensively assess where the risks and vulnerabilities lie in the landscape, because those are the instruments you're going to have to turn to for your main investment decisions, as well as any hedging you're you're going to do. Once you've done that, you can now start doing your scenario analysis. And um, what uh, I suggest that you, you, you do is develop a list of these uncertain risks, things that you think are effectively impossible, or rather that markets think are impossible. Now, notice, this is pretty much a fool's errand, right? If the world really is truly as uncertain as I'm describing it, you're never gonna guess what are the actual bad things that are gonna happen, right? But the idea here is to try and be as broad as possible in doing that scenario analysis so that you guess enough different types of things that could go wrong, such that if you were able to design an insurance portfolio to guard against those things, it would span the set of likely market outcomes for the things that actually do go wrong in the world that you didn't anticipate. And that's what we call a spanning set. So it has to be a a broad, vigorous effort of uh, um, scenario analysis here. Now, once you have that, that's when you actually go out and look for what could I use as insurance here? Now, the key thing is this is an insurance. This, this is not your main business, right? Your main business uh, is producing widgets or in the case of investment management, um, uh, or earning returns. So you can't afford to pay a lot for this insurance. So you got to somehow figure out how do I guard against a whole bunch of risks that I've identified at a cheap price? This is where you use that um, uh, you know, turn the robustness satisfying on its head and come up with this opportunist satisfying. So you operate like a venture capitalist. What you do is you set a very high threshold for payout. You say, look, if I'm going to buy an insurance contract, some sort of derivative, um, it has to pay me at least 30 times my premium in the case where um, uh, it's protecting me, right? You set that very high threshold, which means that the price is then cheap enough that you can actually accumulate um, a uh, um, portfolio of these to guard your whole portfolio at a um, set of prices that you can uh, manage. There's another important point of this, which is you're not gonna be able to go out and do all that at once, right? This has to be a dynamic process and you have to go out and look for those cheap insurance contracts when they're out of favor with everyone else. That's what's going to make them cheap enough. So you want to be counter consensus in that. So that's step four. Step five is now that you have that insurance portfolio, go back and redo step one. Notice that because you now have this insurance portfolio protecting you in all these different scenarios, you have a very different risk profile for your core portfolio, so you can afford to spend more capital uh, in your budget on those areas where you have very strong, firm, convicted views, where you have your core views, and that's ultimately the five-step program. Five-step
0: program. Thank, thank you very much, and, and that gives us something kind of very practical to work with, but. Can I just follow up with with one thing on that? So this gives us a good way to think about dealing with uncertainty. Does it run the risk of believing that we've tamed uncertainty? So is there just an element of uncertainty is a very difficult thing. It's hard to quantify, but we just have to accept that it's something that we can't tame. And something like this may give us a false illusion that we've got it it cracked.
1: Uh, It's it's such a great question, Andy. Absolutely, Um, and that was something I hinted at uh, earlier when I said, look, when you're dealing with uncertainty, you just kinda gotta accept there's ambiguity there and you don't know everything. So this doesn't mean that just because you have this insurance portfolio, you can take whatever risks you want, right? Because remember, you designed what you thought as a spanning set and it provides more protection than you had before but it doesn't protect you against everything. Certainly there are going to be asset market outcomes that were not covered by your supposedly spanning set, right? So you always have to remember that you didn't design a perfect portfolio. Um, But I think it also brings to mind, um, uh, you know, I I often quote, this because it's so applicable in, in so many different ways, but particularly here. Um, you know, one of the aphorisms of, of the Buddha was perfection is a path, not a destination, right? This is a process. You have to keep following it and recognize that you're never going to achieve it, but you're doing your best to try and achieve it. That's really interesting, Marvin. Thank you very much. We,
2: we're coming to, an, to, uh, to our session, and we have always asked our guests two signature questions. So um, we used to ask our guests about if they could tell us about a bad decision that they had made themselves or seen others made, and what had been the consequence of that. And recently, with one of our guests in the show, I kind of realized that we were Structuring that question the wrong way. So I'm going to tweak it a little bit and I'm going to say okay. to you um, If you can if you can give us an example of a bad, of a, of a bad decision uh, That either you have made or seen others made and can you identify whether that the The outcome of that bad decision was the result of bad luck or bad decision process yeah, and then and then and then i'm going to also ask you about if you can recommend us a book because we are very avid readers in the value team and, and we lo- love all uh,
1: uh book recommendations okay great well um uh, so let me start with the first question and uh you know I, I have a relatively long career especially especially for finance um so i've switched jobs a few times through, through my careers and i can honestly say i have only one job decision that I regret. Um, And and by the way, I'll preface that um, to give you a sense of the magnitude here, that I once launched my own macro hedge fund, blew myself up and lost most of my personal accumulated wealth. Um, And that's not the job I'm referring to. So this gives you some perspective on the one that I regret. And the reason why I regret it gets exactly to the heart of your question, Juan. It's about process. I messed up on process. So I I went to join this startup that had substantial backing from a really um, uh, well-known, important, uh, well-regarded enterprise with a huge balance sheet. Um, It was in a fast growing area of the market. You know, you look at this on paper, you say, wow, this is a home run. How do you, how did I get this opportunity? All the other people involved in this were star studded names that, uh, you, you know, were huge successes in their respective fields. And I go join and I kid you not, Two weeks into the job, I call one of my best friends and I say, I think I've just made the biggest mistake of my life. What did I do wrong? None of these people, none of the firms involved had ever done what they were trying to do here and they didn't have a plan my diligence totally failed. My diligence was going by people's resumes, by people's CVs, by going by reputations. Those are important and those are absolutely things you need to check. But you also need to ask the basic question, is this a viable enterprise and do these people have a plan to do it? <laughs> so that was, that. that is, uh, um, Probably uh, um, the single biggest, uh, um, certainly career mistake uh, that that I've I've made, and it was definitely a result of process, not bad luck. Um, That's right. To your your book recommendation, uh, you know, I have um, uh, one. I actually was was just asked recently. to do a webcast interview with one of the co-authors of of, of a book that uh, um, came out this spring, um, uh, I will abbreviate the the the, the title. Um, it's called "Calling BS: The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World," uh, and its its authors are uh, Javon West and Carl Bergstrom, the latter of whom I I interviewed. And There are so many different books that I could recommend here, but I have to say this is really important to some of the issues that you've just been asking me uh, about. And this underlying question we got into about um, uh, uh, quantification um, of uh, um, risks versus these unquantifiable risks and while this book has gotten a lot of attention in in the whole covid pandemic and also in the current age of politics for hey isn't this really about all these people who are you know trying to manipulate us um uh with untruths and fake news and things like that but the the real message of 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 the book um is about the increasing sophistication of uh, um, BS that's being used right now, these quantitative methods. And they use this wonderful uh, analogy to talk about big data. Um, and the, um, uh, the analogy is that big data is effectively the belief that if you pile enough um, horse dung, somewhere inside there's a pony buried, right? <laughs> and they're basic, Um, uh, thesis is about we've taught a lot of people, um, including, you know, many um, uh, of the people that we deal with, all these fancy quantitative methods, but we never actually stopped and taught them how to think. And so they're turning out a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily true or full of meaning. And, And what they teach you in the book is how to ask the right questions about what, who's doing this, what is the data that they're using as an input, and what is the output? And could you possibly get that output realistically from the data that was input? And if you ask those questions appropriately, you do not need to be sophisticated enough to understand their black box mechanics. All you need to do is use logic to decide whether this is BS or not. And I think it's a really important um, book, especially for people who think that they're educated, think that they uh, uh, understand all these things. And I guarantee you'll learn things from this book.
0: That sounds like a great recommendation. Thank, thanks very much, Marvin. Yep, so we've come to the end. Um, and I really want to say thank you for your time. It's been fascinating. Um, and thank you for writing that note because it's definitely different from Things we've read um, elsewhere on the sell side. Um, if people are interested in hearing more from you or seeing more of your work, where would they find
1: you? Well, th- thank you for having me on the, the value perspective, Juan and, and, and Andy. I, I really appreciate the, the, the time uh, to be able to, to share our views around this. And yeah, if people want to find out more about um, what we've been discussing here or some of our other uh, um, views, um, registered clients of Barclays can visit Barclays Live, uh, Barclays Research Portal, where you can find all of our research. Brilliant.
0: It just leaves me to say thank you very much, Marvin. It's been great. Thank you.